Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown show. A show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Tonight, we're talking with Cheryl Gilliam. And Cheryl, I'm going to tell you a little bit about her from her bio, is has more than 35 years of professional experience in the medical and food industries working for companies such as Johnson & Johnson, Heinz USA, Sara Lee Bakery, Kraft Foods, and currently for everyone's favorite tiger in the world, Tony the Tiger, at Kellogg's in the legal and compliance department. She currently serves as board secretary on the West Michigan LGBT and Allies Chamber of Commerce and is founding board member of organizations. She also serves on the Board of Directors as Vice President for Outfront Kalamazoo and is a member of the Michigan State University Athletics Council and MSU Varsity S Club Board of Directors as immediate past president. She graduated from Cass Technical High School in Detroit and continued her education at Michigan State University as a student at Michigan State she majored in packaging engineering, earning a Bachelor's of Science degree. She was a member of the MSU Women's Track and Field Team, led by Dr. Nell Jackson and later Karen Dennis. Uh, she was the first Spartan to win four consecutive Big Ten titles in an individual event, the 200 meters. In 2014, she was awarded the top award at W.K. Kellogg, K-Values Award. Kellogg North America for diversity and inclusion and in 2015 she is awarded the W.K. Kellogg Global Value Awards representing KNA. She champions senior and youth programs. She enjoys volunteering with youth anti-bullying programs and youth mentoring programs that help young people achieve their aspirations. Cheryl, welcome to the show. I'm very happy to have you with us tonight. Well, thank you, Michelle. I am so glad to be here on your program. It's a joy. Well, you know, I remember us meeting. It was funny. It was at an awards program. And after you received the award, we got to talking. And there, it's like we're both from Detroit. And there are things that I know aren't there anymore. And we talked about um, childhood experiences that we both remember, like going to the Verner's uh, factory and and going, I believe it was to Heinz, and to going to Kellogg's, when you'd get these little carryouts, and you'd be like a, a school kid, and you'd have this bag full of goodies. And it was like really kind of cool. And then we realized we both had gone to Cass Tech. And so, you know how we talk about this, six degrees of separation. So in many ways, it's like we were always in each other's orbit, but we just got to know each other then. It, it's true. Growing up, I mean, I graduated in 1977 from Cass Tech. Mm -hmm went on to college, 
and then my first job took me to New Jersey. And, it, and now I've made the full circle, as you can tell from my bio. I've come back to the state of Michigan, and I'm going to retire here. Mm. So I've come home. How and long were you home? Go ahead. Go ahead. I've come home not just to retire, but I've come back to my state to make a difference. It needs a little help. You know, um, I love I love your neck of the woods. And people are like, always when they think of Michigan and they think of African Americans, of course they think of the Metro Detroit area. But, you know, we are everywhere. In fact, um, just recently I was talking to a mutual friend of ours, Michelle Johnson, who was doing like this historical thing and talking about where African Americans have been all over the state. What was it? When you came back from New Jersey, did you go immediately to Portage? No. In fact, my journey took me from New Jersey, then I went to Pittsburgh, where my daughter was born and worked for Heinz. And then my supervisor, when I worked in New Jersey, she had gone to Chicago, and she was working at Sarah Lee. So right after my daughter was born, and I had just built a house from the ground, she gives me a call and offers me a position. And I adored working for her. So I took the position and moved to outside of Chicago. And and through the years in Chicago, we've come back to, to the state of Michigan. And I enjoy working in Illinois for both Sara Lee and Kraft Foods. And in Illinois, I found my true passion. My daughter was coming of age, and she was just studying government in elementary school. So that's when we got our itch to start working for the community and helping people in government. And we started working with local, state, and federal politicians. And I worked with the campaign. I was one of the significant campaign people for Lake County, Illinois, to make state senator Barack Obama our United States Senator. Mm. And throughout that campaign, and I got to meet with him a little bit through that campaign, we knew that he would become our president. We just knew it working with him as he's transferring from state senator to United States Senator. Yeah, don't say, you know, I mean, that isn't something when you see that, that you can see that. Some people, you just sort of feel that greatness in them. You had your daughter with you. I mean, how great is that for her to where she was able to, even as a young person, be involved in that process? She remembers it still, and that's now become her passion. I'm an engineer. Math and science are my passion. Mm-hmm. She likes to read and write. She's going to go into a field. She'll probably be a behind-the-scenes type person because um, that's what she likes to do and she is doing, but for her, when we were going through this, we worked with Melissa Bean at the time, who was going into the, into the House of Rep, the U.S. House, and she took out a Republican who had been there for years. And at the very beginning of, of Melissa's campaign, we sat at Melissa's table with her three, her daughters, and Taylor and I were there. And Taylor was reading this book, Oh, it, it was like the size of War and Peace. And Melissa immediately <laughs> called her the reader. Uh-huh. And we worked really hard to get Melissa. Um, we brought, we gave her the black vote uh-huh. uh, so she could take out the Republicans. And then at the same time, in conjunction to Melissa's campaign, we worked with 
State Senator Obama's campaign. So Taylor got to meet a whole lot of people at that young age. Uh, now, you know, um, well, let's go back a little bit. I mean, you are, I'm listening to you say how you built a house, then you went and did that, but, I mean, can we go back to those college years? I mean, the first spark to win four consecutive Big Ten titles in an individual event? So, how did, I'll tell I mean, you. Was, was that always your passion, running and and being involved in that, did you do that in high school? I mean, yes. How did you How did you get there? I got there from my dad. My huh. dad went to Michigan Normal, which is now Eastern Michigan, and he is in the Athletics Hall of Fame at Eastern Michigan. And when I was a very youngster, I followed my dad everywhere. My dad said, "Let's." I say go. Huh. Um, I started running track at 12, and I took it very seriously at 13. I won my first national title in Birmingham, Alabama, representing Detroit in the United States Youth Games in, in Birmingham, Alabama at 13. That was in the summer. That fall, I went to Cass Tech. My freshman year at Cass Tech, we took four young ladies to the state championship game. Uh, here in Michigan, we won the Michigan State Championships for Class A school. Four young ladies did that wow. my freshman year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you have to know the time. This was right after Title IX was signed, when programs at the universities and high schools and others were building their women's and girls' programs. We had a powerhouse my four years at Cass Tech. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. So, well, how was it like when you when you transitioned like from high school into college? Um, you know, was it you know, I sounds like I mean like you were the superstars at Cass Tech, but college is a different thing and how did you how did your your level of competition go and what did you what changed about it? Well, moving up to a division one school like Michigan State University it changes everything because here you are a hot shot superstar at Cass Tech. But when you go to D1, everybody's a superstar. Uh-huh. So you cannot go to a university with an ego for one thing. Your teammates, everyone has an ego. But we have to balance it as a team. And and my coach, who you mentioned earlier, Dr. Jackson, and I, uh-huh. I would tell your audience to Google her. Dr. Jackson went to the Olympics herself. She went to Tennessee State University. She was the first African-American to become uh, assistant athletic director at a major university such as MSU. She came to that program to build the women's program in sports, and they hired a black woman to do this. Mm. Um, Dr. Jackson, till this day, is the most professional woman that I've ever met. So she took the shy young lady from Cass Tech with all of this talent, and she gave me my foundation to be the professional that I am now. She didn't groom me just to win championships. She groomed me to be a professional. She groomed me to take charge. She gave me opportunities to speak in front of people. She, she pushed me um, to get my education and to mentor other people similar to how she mentored me. And I'll never forget her. She died um, 
way too young. I am now older than she was when she died, um, which is hard for me to believe now, but that woman was such a professional. And, you know, often when I'm talking to people, you'll find that there is someone, you know, and it doesn't necessarily, people always say, oh, well, parents just, but sometimes, you know, outside of your family, there is that person. And how great was that, that it wasn't like, like, we often hear about athletes being exploited just for, as long as you can run, that's fine, don't, don't hurt anything. But like you said, she groomed you to be a professional. You know, it wasn't just like, go get us those medals. It was like she groomed you. And, and how great was that? So. It, it, it was. When I, this past fall, I won one of the top honors at Michigan State University at the MSU Grand Award Gala. And and when I gave my speech, the people that I, I, I thought to recognize first, even before my own family, were Dr. Jackson, who was my coach and our athletic, assistant athletic director, um, Charles, Dr. Wharton at that time was our president of Michigan State University, and he embraced me when I signed my letter of intent. Uh, he sent me letters, and he embraced me, and he pushed me to succeed in engineering. And as you know, the Wharton Center is named for him. Um, Dr. Clarence Underwood, who's also African-American male, and he was my academic advisor at that time for athletics. And Dr. Underwood was no-nonsense with any other athletes. He tell you first and foremost, your job is to go to school and graduate from here. Run, doing your, 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 your sport is secondary. Mm -hmm. Dr. Underwood will come to your dormitory room and get up in your face and curse you out if you skip school. That's how much he loves you. Um, so academics, it's just mm -hmm. like all of them impressed upon you that academics was, you know, sports was a way, but academics was the finish line. You said that you said that perfectly, Michelle. That's that's the thing that I'm going to now take back and say. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's like wow, you know, that that's really great. So you went, you had this transition as you went into college, and you said, but then you competed and you went to Europe as part of the Muhammad Ali Track Club, which I didn't. I mean, when you think of Muhammad Ali, I think of boxing. But there's the Muhammad Ali track club? Yes. He was, um, if you do research on Muhammad Ali, you will see that he gave his money to a lot of things. Not just boxing, but he gave his money to a lot of kids so they could succeed. And track was one of his passions. I didn't know it at the time. And this happened in 1980, the year that we had our non-Olympic team. I took seventh in the Olympic trials that year. I would not have made it to the Olympic team, but you still have hope. So after the Olympics, when they're doing the tour for track and field following the Olympic Games, which were in Moscow that year, I went over to Europe and I ran against Olympians from other countries, but under not under the USA flag, but for Muhammad Ali. And that experience from a young kid from the city of Detroit, who, for me, going out of the country was going to Canada in winter. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. or up to Toronto. This was huge. I traveled by myself, kind of, going from country to country to country, hopping on planes. I even went to Budapest, which at that time was behind the Iron Curtain. Um, it was enlightening. You know, now, I, I'm, you, you find, I mean, the fact that you have these experiences and to see the world. And often, and I know that you advocate a lot with young people, you see young people who their viewpoint of the world is very limited. They haven't gone anywhere. Um, do you, are you able to, when you relate to these experiences and the places that, you, that you've been, are you able to, do you hear like this longing to want to try that, or are you able to encourage young people to step outside your comfort zone, you know, get that passport, you know, compete? Yes. I grew up in Southwest Detroit. My world was limited until I found track and field. That was my avenue to travel. That was my avenue to really embrace diversity and inclusion. So when I talk to the kids today, regardless of their income, their socioeconomical background, you know, the best way for education is to travel. Now, that doesn't mean you need to go travel to um, to Africa or to Europe or Asia right out the gate. But travel outside your neighborhood and find diversity. Travel to another place of worship, even if you do not believe in that religion. Just embrace yourself with that diversity. My daughter and I went to Passover when she was a kid and had a blast um, just learning from a different religion and their culture. That doesn't mean you need to be part of that. Or go to a neighborhood that's not your neighborhood and sit down at a local neighborhood restaurant and eat something that you haven't tried before. You might like it. So I tell the kids these simple things that you can, in the city of Detroit, for example, just take the bus if you don't have any other way to do it. I mean, I took three buses to get to high school. Just take a bus. Just go somewhere. Go outside your comfort zone and sit down with people who do not look like you um, in, in all, all avenues who aren't like you and grow yourself up. Your parents may not grow you up because they may have biases and kind of keep you away, but you can do it. You know, I think that that is such, such you know, great advice. You know, I often tell people, you know, to explore things and they feel like, well, what made you think about it? And I talk about being able to go to the library and want actively reading about things other than what I was used to. And, and you know, and, and like I said, that simple thing of get on the bus, go and check it out. You know, you don't, like I said, you don't have to become, but you can go and learn, and that can be a, a doorway to new avenues, new worlds, new experiences that will help you in life. So, it, exactly. Detroit has multicultural festivals. Take advantage of those. At my job at Kellogg, we have eight employee resource groups. Um, anything from Ola, which is Latin America or Hispanic, to Capable, which are people with disabilities and their supporters, to KVET, to um, K-Pride and Allies, which is LGBT and Allies, to CAR, which is Kellogg African American. There's, there's eight that cover about everything you can think of. When I hired in the Kellogg, I began to join everyone. 
Our latest ones would be KVET and Capable. I joined all eight. And some people will say, well, how do you have time to do all those things? I say, A, I don't have time. But first and foremost, I join them on to show support to those each affinity groups. And then when I do have time, I learn stuff. Um, I'm multicultural one. I've learned about Ramadan. I've learned about the Festival of Light. I've learned about so many different holidays because there's a thousand holidays between October and December. Plus, I like to eat food and make have good food. But it's all about supporting someone that's different. Now, do you think, okay, because well, I want to get to Portage and to the to Western Michigan, because I've noticed, like, when I went to Kalamazoo, and um, the first time that I went to fire, and here were people from all, I mean, it was like, you saw more groups, and you saw more people interacting and doing, and being a part of one another's culture. You just talked about all the affinity groups that you have right there. Now, as big and bold as, as Southeast Michigan is, often you don't see that here. Is there something in the water or something different about Western Michigan? And I tell you that I know that a lot of the diversity that I know of it that's in Michigan, I learned from being on West uh, and visiting Western Michigan. But if, did you find that when you settled in Portage that there was, a greater opportunity to delve into diversity, to, to feel more inclusive with, with your coworkers, with your community? You know, out of all the places that I lived, here in the Kalamazoo area, I found more acceptance with the cultures here than anywhere else that I've been in. I live in Portage, and I live on a cul-de-sac in Portage. It's a nice middle-class area. When I moved to this little cul-de-sac, um, to the left of my house, there's a, a family. The wife is from Finland and the husband is from Pennsylvania. They had one biological son. They could not have another. So they adopted a young man from Ghana. Mm. He's a white couple. Mm-hmm. And, and that, was, that was perfectly normal for them to go and adopt this young man from Ghana who's now my godson. And then next door to them, there's a family. He's a professor at Western he and his wife are from Ghana. They're not U.S. citizens. Um, the family next to them, they're no longer here, but they were from Eastern Europe at the time. They were from uh, Poland. So they were in our neighborhood. And then the couple across the street from me, the wife, the husband is from Iowa, white guy from Iowa, and his wife is from Japan. Uh, so we had all this diversity right here. Uh-huh. And and then in Kalamazoo, which is a small college town, I thought. I grew up in Detroit. Who knew about Kalamazoo? <laughs> and I've been I've I've been I've been in, I've been welcome for the most part. Last year, May June, the city of Portage were entertaining whether or not they were going to have a fully inclusive non discrimination uh, act here. So it went before the city council to decide whether or not they would vote upon this or put it to the people. I got wind of it. Some of my coworkers got wind of it, and we would go to the hearing. And then we got other people to go to the hearing. So by June, the, the, 
the city council was going to vote whether or not they were going to vote to just go ahead and enact this, this ordinance or put it to vote. So we rallied. Um, and I'll let your audience know straight up, I'm a lesbian woman. And we rallied. And here's what happened on the night when they, they were talking about this. There are people for and against this as they had been the, the previous meetings. My friends from Kellogg, the people that I work with, that are part of the LGBTQ community and our allies, came to this meeting. When you lined up to present your case in front of the city council, we lined up one after the other. And we started with um, a couple of co-workers. We started with people. One of my friends, her, her daughter is a, is a, a trans uh, female who's in middle school, and she talked about her daughter. And then I led it up, and I had, I had been to all the meetings. So this time I actually read my speech rather than talk out loud uh, so I can make sure I got my point. After I spoke, another man from Kellogg spoke. He took time out of his busy schedule, which you understand in a second, and he stayed throughout the entire night. He's the vice chairman of our board of directors. He's our top lawyer. This man is significantly busy, and he came to Little Portage to support and make sure it would be known that they should pass this ordinance that night. And then we ended with one of my friends reading a letter. She simply went to the podium, introduced herself, and said where she lived, and then she said, I have a letter to read. And she read this letter, and at the end she simply said, sincerely, John Bryant chairman and CEO of the Kellogg Company. And you could hear a hush over that audience. This is how important it was for my company to support us in the small town of Portage. We got that kind of firepower. Um, and it was all over in live. And Gary and I, we were hugging afterwards because they voted and they passed it that night rather than put it to a vote. And this is how things are changing here on the West Coast, which a lot of people on the East Side think the West Coast here in Michigan is conservative. We may be conservative, but we are changing. And come to 2018, you'll see a lot of change. Well, I'll tell you, because um, uh, that's how Michelle and I were talking. I mean, that's how when I first, I, I, I have been to Kalamazoo. When we were kids in the summer, we would go to Bangor. And we go to Kalamazoo, was the big city, you know, all up and down, Grand Rapids, Paw Paw, you know, Dwajak, all of those places. So those are familiar to me. And when I went to, when they had theirs, you saw that same thing. Like you said, it's conservative, but you heard stories and you heard people talk about where they wanted to raise their families and what they mm -hmm. were wanting to see. And, you know, and I'm thinking as I'm listening to you, here you have your daughter. And she's been about, and she's seen young Barack Obama, future president, and she's seen that. How great is it now, having seen, like, the bigger political, to come into Portage and see all this diversity and this, this support and this inclusiveness? And did 
that cross your mind when you were moving there, or was it a pleasant surprise? And how do you feel it has impacted the woman that she's becoming? You know, it was a pleasant surprise. And for a minute, I thought I made a bad decision because um, I came here for the education because the Portage public schools are very good and they have a, a IB program, an international baccalaureate program, which is rare. Um, so I thought that would be an opportunity for her to also go through that program. And then I thought, dang it, we should have gone to Kalamazoo and went to Kalamazoo Central. Because if you recall, when President Obama became president, he started going to the graduations of high schools. And his first high school that he chose was Kalamazoo Central. Um, he chose Kalamazoo Central to come and do their graduation out of the whole United States of America. So that was just significant to have the President of the United States, fly in the Grand Rapids on Air Force One, take the Marine helicopter to Kalamazoo, drive over with his big entourage to do a high school graduation. So at that moment, I thought, we should have gone to Kalamazoo. <laughs> but with that all aside, it was great. Because she, her friends, um, my house, has always been an open house. I have a safe house. You can come to my house. You can watch TV, eat any of the food in my house. You, if you need to sleep over, you can. We had a young lady that came to live with us, Taylor's year, her high school year, in her senior year in high school. This young lady's mom kicked her out. And I travel a lot. Taylor called me up and she said, Mom, can she come and live with us? And I knew my daughter wasn't sure exactly what she was asking me, and I asked her again, are you sure? So the young lady came and stayed with us, and she's kind of now my daughter, too. <laughs> That's um, great. That's great. Well, right now we're going to take a short break in our conversation, and uh, we'll be right back. And Cheryl, because there's so much more that I want to talk to you about. So you're listening to Collections by Michelle Brown with my special guest, Cheryl Gilliam, and we'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. Well, we're returning to our conversation with Cheryl. Cheryl, you know, I think that that's, that's great. Like I said, I have always felt good about about coming back to Western Michigan. And you've been there for a while now. And you are a spokesperson, not just for the company that you work for, which is it's Kellogg's, and you talk about, you know, the different programs that they have, but you are really a spokesperson for on many levels about diversity and inclusiveness, about um, education, and like you said, most all of my guests are either LGBTQ or allies, and here you are living your truth. You're an out lesbian. You live in Portage. You're building a community, 
how does all of this, you know, when you look at all of this and you go in to, to work, your packaging engineer, do you get more questions like, what's a packaging engineer, you know, and to, oh, so you're a lesbian? <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's a super great question. I graduated as a packaging engineer, and I've been one for more than 35 years throughout many industries. I, I go up to Michigan State to talk to the students up there. In fact, next month I'll be a guest lecturer. I teach a class up there in packaging. Mm-hmm. Just recently, though, I made a career change. Um, the beginning of February, I went from being a packaging engineer, which is my career for 35 years, and now I'm working in legal and compliance, um, which is extraordinary if you look at that career path. I'm working with both EEO-type situations and employee relations, and and that change comes from my outside work and my passion for people is how I obtain that position with an educational background in engineering. So when people come up to me and they ask me about my work as a packaging engineer, or do they come up to me and ask me about, hey, as a lesbian, I'll tell you I get both of those. Mm-hmm. Um, my gift or curse, I'm not sure all the time <laughs> what it is. But even at Kellogg, speaking of people in the LGBTQ community, Kellogg is totally supportive. We have some of the best policies for major company in the United States, uh, certainly here in the state of Michigan, uh, with Whirlpool and Dow and a few others. But we still have employees that are in the closet. We still have employees that, that, that are still questioning. So I get pulled into private conversations. Um, to talk to people, and I'm real. I'll talk to you not as a Kellogg employee, but I'll talk to you as a person, and we'll have hard conversations. We had some really hard conversations in in October and, and November and December following the election and leading up to the election. Um, so those conversations, I highly respect and keep those com- uh, uh, keep those confidential. But then on the outside, I pushed a lot um, here in the state of Michigan and at Kellogg because I am a people person. So I well, you know, ways. Mm-hmm. well, you know, especially there. And, you know, and I often, you know, say, like you said, is it a curse or it's a blessing? But I think that also being African-American, being woman and being lesbian or gay and being out, I mean, it's almost like, there's a place for you to lead and to be that voice. Now, you talk about diversity and inclusion, but when you look at it, like you have to deal with issues beyond just LGBTQ, like you have a Latino community. And I'm sure, like you said, you talk about the tough conversations. I mean, walking in your community, I'm sure that your neighbor starts wondering about, you know, this executive order on immigration. What does that mean for them? You have people who are coming here who maybe not be citizens. People who are coming here in pursuit of the American dream, which is often jobs, education. And as you navigate through this, how do you feel that, you know, 
part of the road that you traveled, you know, particularly when you went, you were that, that young lady who went from chaos and you had Dr. Jackson sort of say, you know, let me show you how to be a professional. What in that path and, and that, that part of being a professional helps you deal with these people who you encounter in your community, in your workplace, who now maybe aren't so sure about what's happening? How do you bring all that together? And I'll, and I'll be brief with, with the early part. When I ran track, my parents' home was an open home. And some people that I ran track with from the club, we talk about it today. A young lady came to my house and had grits for the first time. Uh, she slept in a black person's home for the first time. We developed roots that early in life with, with being different. And the fast forwarded today, um, some of my friends and colleagues earlier, you told, I told, I talked to you about religion. Uh, and, and I have friends that practice several different religions. So let's first talk about the immigration situation right now, twofold. I have a lot of friends that I work with that are here in my community that I pass that practice Islam. They're Muslim. And with, with our current president, they're scared to death. Mm. Uh, we have people at work who are wondering, can I leave the country? Because I may not get back in the country. Because today he's talking about these seven countries. Tomorrow is six. It could be ten. We don't know because he changes his mind every day. Mm. Um, so you might get locked out. More importantly, you're in the country. You just had a baby. You want the grandparents to come visit their new grandchild. You're, you're afraid they can't come in here to see their new grandchild. You certainly can't go across the border. So there you go. You built the wall without even building a wall with these new immigration laws, right? Mm. Um, keeping people out of this country which is just foolishness when you look at it. And then you look at my, my Hispanic friends, and people need to know that it's not just Mexico when you talk about that. Right now he's talking about let's keep the Mexicans out. But when people are profiling in the street, odds are that little dumb sheriff doesn't know which country you hail from. He just knows that you're brown-skinned and speak Spanish. You could be from Spain, Puerto Rico, any of the multitude of countries that speak Spanish. And they're going to profile you, hold you up, and lock you down without getting the details. You could have a Ph.D. Mm -hmm. and run into some nonsense because of what he's saying down there in D.C. Uh, so it's, it's quite an issue right now, and there are a lot of people seriously afraid. Like, we may have been afraid in the 70s and 60s and 50s. And now he's making everyone afraid, except for those that are not like him. And we've heard this story before, and I can stay on this topic for hours. <laughs> mm -hmm. so I can't believe how ignorant this country has gotten. Or maybe it's not ignorant. Maybe it's that this country, you know how you have a, a flame in the campfire and it's beginning to go out. You just have embers. Mm -hmm. And then a strong wind comes along and fuels those embers. And now it's, it's this glowing flame, this powerful flame. That's what he did in 2015 and 16. And now that he's mm -hmm. in office, that's what's happening. 
And so we need people to stand up. We need people to resist. We need people to just open up your mouth and have a voice. Do you find, I mean, and, and I think that that's one of the things that I like about you. It's like you are, you're living your life and you're out there. And in doing this, and I, you know, I think that just the other day I had the opportunity to speak to a Latino mother. I mean, who sort of eased on over there and told me that she had voted for Trump. And, you know, she had buyer's remorse. But she said that her issue was abortion. And, you know, and so I was saying to her, I said, okay, okay, I'm pro-choice. I said, but can't we, we can both agree on the future of our children and that this direction that things are going isn't good for all of our children. And how do we walk it back? Now, people think of Western Michigan as conservative. You also talked about the diversity in it. Do you find, do you feel that at this point in time, you are in a unique part of, position to help those who maybe have are having buyer's remorse about their president or those who don't get the overall picture that uh, affordable health care, uh, bullying of youth, trans rights, protections of LGBTQ, you know, uh, equal pay. I do you find that you are in a position to sort of like help people walk back or open up that conversation? Yes, I do, Michelle. I honestly do. I have built a foundation here. I have built a foundation on truth and honesty. If you know me, mm-hmm. that's what you know about Cheryl. She's about truth and honesty. Um, I am open and embracing of, of cultures here. And when, when you talk about our current president, and yes, there's a lot of buyer's remorse out there, but still, there's, there's folk who, no matter what he does, they will embrace him. So let's talk about today's event, um, Affordable Care Act. You heard today that <laughs> if the new health care gets passed, 14 million people will lose their health care. <laughs> and in a few more years, 24 million people will lose their health care. And my daughter and I were just talking about that, and, and we halfway jokingly said all those folk in West Virginia that voted for him blindly because they thought he would bring jobs back, A, jobs are never coming back to the coal industry. It's dead. Mm-hmm. And then those folk are losing their health care. So they're finding out a whole bunch of things that they're going to lose. If you're on Medicaid, you're losing your health care. Um, mm-hmm. Going back to abortion, and I respect that. And I get the woman that you talk to. She's probably Catholic, and that's a real oh, yeah. conflict. It's a mm-hmm. very, it's a conflict. I have some black friends who belong to the religious right, and they told me they did not vote for Barack Obama um, because they voted for the babies because mm-hmm. uh, they were pro-abortion. But you have to look at your priorities again. The abortion rate has gone down, gone down, gone down. And it really never was about abortion. Pro-choice does not necessarily mean you're for abortion. You're just for a woman's right to choose. It's up Mm -hmm. to that one woman to decide what's best for her and her family. Um, That does not mean you need to go out there and have abortion if you're against it. Mm -hmm. Education. I grew up by 
educators. My dad was an assistant principal and later a principal. By the way, he was the first black assistant principal in this city of Detroit in 67, I think. 68, right after the mm-hmm. riot. Mm-hmm. Education is under siege. You read today that the state of Michigan once again went lower with pay for teachers. But there's so many things now that he's in office, and each day he writes yet another executive order that people are being aware of. Uh, and now they're wondering, oh, I voted for that. Mm-hmm. The Great Lakes won't have protection. Mm-hmm. Um, the EPA, the funding is getting cut. They're seeing a lot of these gains that we've had, whether you're Republican or Democrat, are being cut because it's not really about the making America great again. It's not really about we the people. It's about that 0.01%, the billion billionaires. That's who it's really about. Not even the millionaires, the billion billionaires. That small pocket that's all in his cabinet, it's all about that part of making America great again. Let's just make our fat pockets fatter. You know, uh, I, I was listening to, um, though I forget his name, but he's a gentleman, he was over in the environmental justice department within the EPA, and he has resigned. And, yes. you know, one of the things that he was saying was that many people think that you're just talking about urban areas, but how many things that are environmentally unsound, whether it is, you know, bad water, if it's pollution, everything, those are happening in areas where the poor people live. And all the poor people aren't necessarily black or brown. And, you know, and they said, well, we're going to teach us, like, sort of move it here, there, and everywhere, and it will be covered. But it won't be covered. And like you said, this is the Great Lakes state. And, you know, most of the, the natural fresh water is right around here, and we're not protecting it. And on your side, there's the pipeline. There's talk about what's happened with the pipeline. There's been leaks. I mean, you've got what's happening in Flint. All of these things affect our community, black, brown, white, whoever. It's true. We're all the same human race, and there's only one planet, and that's Earth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when you when you when you pollute it, it takes years, lifetimes, to get rid of that type of damage. We had the Kalamazoo Enbridge pipeline burst in the Kalamazoo River, mm-hmm. and I was there the day it, it it burst, and you could smell that it made you quite sick. Kellogg had to shut down. Our Kellogg plant had to shut down because of the stench in the air. So our cereal wouldn't have that. It would have gone in the garbage. Um, and it took years, and they're still cleaning the Kalamazoo River. Imagine yep. if the pipeline near Mackinac burst. That's also owned by, owned by Enbridge. Enbridge, mm-hmm. Yep. Um, now, it, there's a lot of things that people need to, as they say in the culture, be woke for. And, it, and, and speaking about poor, if you look at the numbers, there are far more poor whites than minorities when you look at the numbers. And it makes sense. That's why they're minorities. The rural community, there are far more people on Medicaid than getting food assistance. So when people talk about these programs, um, they need to check themselves because it's not brown folk 
or black folk that are on these programs, um, the majority is the majority. But they like to point to that because it's easy for people to, and I hate to say it, hate upon those groups, Mm -hmm. which makes it easier for them to vote for people like 45. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, now the light. Go ahead. No, and now they're beginning to see the light. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, so, I mean, and it's like, well, where do we go from here? You know, your life has, I mean, like you've had the acts of your life, like you had that early stage when you were, for I will call you a scholar athlete, and it opened up one part. And then you had this, this chunk of time when you were a professional and a mother. And now it's like here you're going into this other act where you're taking on this whole new position, which I thought was interesting how you said that part of what got you into legal and compliance came from the things that you were doing, how did that how did that happen? It, it, it happened because I have a voice, <laughs> and it happened because I speak the truth. So if I, I could speak to my executives at Kellogg, um, I could sit down one on one with my CEO, and I'm I'm not at a high high position. But if I sit down, if he asks me a question, I will answer it as best I can truthfully. So these guys know that I do not play the emperor's new clothes game. I will tell you if you're not wearing any clothes. And that, with that type of attitude, I'm not so much into the politics and everything. So we sit down, and, and I've been invited into these conversations. I'll tell you what I think. And they appreciate that. And this is how I, I moved into this new position. Did you have a moment of pause? Like, you know, when it was like, well, wait a minute. Yeah, I've been, you ha- I have your ear and you've been hearing me. But, you know, I've had this 35 professional years doing this. And this is something that I have your ear and I know what I'm doing. But, but did you have a moment where you were like, you know, of pause, like, do I really want to go into this, or did you boldly go, you know? I boldly went, I boldly (laughs) went, and and, and I have to laugh, like, a few years ago, I'm sitting down with our executives, and we're talking, this was, this was when we were sitting down, and I'm representing K-Pride and Allies, and I'm sitting right next to my CEO and another gentleman who's no longer with the company, and we were talking about a commercial, and, and I mentioned that a project that I was working on, someone um, said that this particular food item was sexy. And, I, and without putting my filters on, I immediately said, this isn't sexy. Chocolate and champagne is sexy. Cereal's not sexy. And then I went back to talk about diversity in advertisement, which is still my passion and we're making inroads. But at that same time, our enemy, General Mills had come out with this commercial, and it was about this young lady, Gracie, and she was concerned about her father's heart health. And she she asked him about his health and everything, and while he was napping, she put Cheerios in, on his chest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and then you saw later her mom, dad's black, mom's white, Gracie's biracial. 
And I'm and so I asked at that table in this moment, why can't Kellogg do a commercial like that? And the other gentleman said, he said, because it's controversial. And this was 2013. And I go, really? It's 2013. I'm a child of the 60s. Biracial marriage was an issue that was eliminated by the Supreme Court in the late 60s. Sidney Poitier even did a movie about it. If it's an issue in 2013, there's something else going on. That is not today's issue, a biracial family. That is so not today's issue. Um, <laughs> and I can't, it, it just came out my mouth. And then I, after I said it, I remembered where I was. Mm. And my CEO started cracking up laughing. So all was good. As I said, that gentleman is no longer with the company. Don't know why. But we are now getting into more and more advertising of today's Americans. I don't like tattoos. Yet my daughter has three of them. Um, <laughs> that's my bias, but I don't put my bias, at least I try not to put my bias on my own child. I, I do nurture versus nature. I'm just human. But I'm just saying, today you can be highly educated and have sleeves of tattoos and everything else. It shouldn't be an issue. You can still be a professional. Um you can have biracial couples. You can have couples who have two different religions. You can have all kinds of couples and and, and just that's today's world. So show it in your advertisement. So we're moving that way. Mm-hmm. Slowly. Uh, Tell I know that Canada. Uh-huh. Yeah. Canada even had a lesbian couple kissing. So we're going that way. Kellogg in the UK had a gay male couple. Um, embracing cornflakes. So we're getting there. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's amazing. You know, because, and you know, I have noticed that I've been in, in Canada and seen ads and go like, I don't remember seeing that, you know. Uh, and that's interesting that we are getting there where they've got it, you know. But, but like you said, a biracial, I mean, I was surprised because I remember hearing pushback on that biracial couple and I'm going like, you know, well, just about every family now at some point has a little brown child, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's like, so what are you talking about? You know, what are you talking about? You know, one of the things like you haven't, even though you, you do all these other things, you're still involved with your university. Um, now, you were, I was reading how you were saying that the Varsity S Club honored you by renaming the Varsity S Young alumni award after you who would qualify i mean what's the qualifications that does it have to be like in track and field or is it like undergraduate what is that award oh how did you find out about it and what was your reaction when you heard they were going to do that i i was simply honored um, one of my passions is, is indeed working with young people, and I mentor them and they mentor me as well. The millennials keep me young and, and, and keep me up with technology. So this particular award, at MSU, a young alumni is defined as someone within 10 years of receiving their bachelor's degree. 
So it's probably someone between 21 and, and 30, give or take a little bit, for one. So you, so for the MSU Varsity S Club, the qualifications would be you need to be a letter winner, and we have 27 sports. So whatever sport that you're there, male or female, um, you would probably need to be a scholar athlete to get the award. More importantly, you would need to be part of the community. So everyone that has won this award thus far, they are they were not only good in their sport, they were not only great in the classroom, but they have significantly given back to their community. And I'll just point out one young man, um, he, he grew up in Three Rivers. He went to MSU as a walk-on football player um, and he made the team, and by his senior year, the team named him Captain. Uh, this is a walk-on black young man who not only makes a D1 football team as a walk-on, but before he left the field, his peers voted him Captain. He used his scholarship, he, he did gain a scholarship to earn both his bachelor's and master's degree. He played a little bit in the NFL, um, and then he came back as a professional. So now he and several other young men that, that are his peers, they formed a nonprofit, uh, Apex Academy, and it's kind of a football camp. So they work with high school young men from the underserved communities. These young men come to their camp and the camp is free because they raise money to pay for their tuition to come to this camp. They come under the guise that it's a football camp, but this camp is all about raising you to become a man. They teach you everything from taking tests, your entrance exams to get into college. They teach you study skills. They teach you about giving back to the community. Um, they teach you simple things as how to sit at a table and what your table manners are. Because that's important. People don't know when you interview, when they take you out to dinner, you need to have some table manners. Mm -hmm. um, so in one week, they do all this. And then they have a graduation on Friday. But it's not over. They stick with these young men until they graduate high school. So they mentor them throughout high school. And they grow them into men. So he was one of my recipients. Right. Um, so people like that. Who, who, who wins? They're amazing young kids. Well, we're going to take our second break here on Collections by Michelle Brown. We will be right back with Cheryl, and I want to talk a little bit more about this, this current, this new act in your life. So we'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. on Blog Talk Radio. Be sure and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. Join the collection at www.collectionsbymichellebrown.com. And we're back. Now, Cheryl, you give a lot. I mean, I think that one of the things that's nice is the fact that you graduated from your university, but you're back. And you're showing, you know, I mean, because I know a lot of people, they go to school and they go and they just go on. And this shows that, you know, there is a life, 
you can go, you can continue to give back to the community. But besides MSU, you also champion senior and youth programs. You volunteer with youth, and you talk about anti-bullying programs and youth mentoring programs. Do you do that? Like, how did within the company, um, within the university, or are there other organizations in the community that you're involved in? One one of my favorite. I do it both with my company and with my university because they both have tremendous resources that I can help guide. Um, mm-hmm. But also, because I live here in the Kalamazoo area, I work a lot with what used to be called the Kalamazoo Gay and Lesbian Research Resource Center, and recently renamed Outfront Kalamazoo. Uh, we went away from the name because it was Kalamazoo Gay and Lesbian. Was was it, we're we're far more broad than that. Yeah, so Outfront covers it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and with that program, I've learned a lot, and I've given back a lot with that particular program because that's working directly with the community and, and teaching and getting information into the school so they can have gay-straight alliances. Um, the trans program is really huge right now because they're an attack on our trans kids. Um, older, you talk about seniors. Uh, working with the seniors that are also part of the, the LGBTQ community. Um, I didn't come out 100% until, my, until I was 50. And we, we don't have enough time to get into why it took me so long. But once I did, I came out, out. So I work a lot with seniors, too. And it's amazed me that I wasn't alone with coming out so late in life. I work with um, people who are now transitioning as seniors, um, which which is a lot of fun also. My mom passed away in 2011, and I held on to a bunch of her clothes until recently, and I donated my my mom's clothes to these trans senior females who are just now transitioning. (laughs) So they have clothes. And my mom was a diva, so they had nice, they had uh-huh. nice clothes. So those two groups I enjoy, the seniors and our and our youth. Um, and I'm not even sure why I gravitate to those two groups the most, but they bring me the greatest joy. And I think they have the greatest challenges, too. Well, I'll tell you, I, I, when I, I follow out from Kalamazoo, you know, like I said, Kalamazoo, I've always got my eye. And I'll tell you one thing about that center. And um, I had a, a trans friend who had moved over that way, but who was in the closet. I mean, I guess she could pass easily. And mm-hmm. something had happened, and she'd been exposed, and the police came. And because she had not connected with the community, she called me down here. So mm-hmm. I called them up there. And you know, that center was there. They were on it. You know, they went to the, to the police station. They advocated for her. They helped her get it. And then later helped her become a part, you know, 
helped her in her coming out oh. within the community. And it was like, when you think of that, you know, that somebody could be up there, call down here, and this was like in a matter of hours, and I wouldn't even say that many hours, call down here. I called one person who I knew who was up there, and they said, well, call the center. And they were on it. And I think that that level of community and an organization that reaches out and that's out there, that is so important. And I'm glad they have you on their board. <laughs> I am they, really I, glad they have The staff at Outfront, they truly are. They go above and beyond. They, they work tremendous hours. I don't think they get paid for all the hours that they work. But this is, they're very passionate, and it's personal, and this is home. So they are always there to help. If we want to have a rally down in Bronson Park, if we want to gather people to talk about something that suddenly came into the news, if the news wants to interview, our executive director is there. But this is one passionate group of people, and I am so proud to work with them. Well, you've had, I mean, I mean, you've gotten really good. I mean, you've had a good staff through history. When I first became involved with it was when Dave Garcia was there. I've watched all of the, I mean, you have like a great group mm-hmm. of people. It seems to attract good people and continue to do good things in the community. And, and that's great. So. You're saying how you were later in life coming out, and um, and now I know that you're engaged to be married. Now, as you start to think of, of are you going to stay, continue to live in Portage? I don't know the answer to that question. My house is up for sale, and my house is going up for sale even before I got engaged because um, I need to downsize. Uh-huh. Uh, my home. My mom used to live with me, and I really needed a lot of space at that point in time. Um, but now I need to downsize. And so now the, the market is okay. I want to sell my home while I can before interest rates go up. So I'm going to move in with my fiance. She lives near Saugatuck. But I probably will need a place here closer to work because that's a 90-minute commute. But she and I are talking about where we want to live. So it will be within an hour radius of Battle Creek. Um, she's retired Navy, so we, we we'll see. So that I'm, that door is open. When you talk uh, to, it, you know how you say how you're working with you know, um, and and you're not a senior, but you know adult adult members of the LGBT community. Many of us who are thinking about that downsizing, you know changing lifestyle, you know, going from the full nest to an empty nest to downsizing our houses to going from being uh, parents to maybe caretaker for our parents to now once again being back together. Do you have any type of affinity group that you find that's coming together around those issues? A couple. Um, MSU has some. And out front, we just started a new, a new subgroup with out front for people of our age to gather together. You know, you got the youth that get together and the people of color that get together and this group that gets together. Now we have one for, for, well, we won't call ourselves seniors, but the 40 and over group 
will go out. Um, so we can go out and have some fun in a space for us. And and I find that, that that's fun because you get to talk to people with, with like areas as you. As I said, I enjoy working with the youth because they keep me young, but you still want to talk to somebody in your own peer group as well. So that's more of a social group right now. Uh, and then we do get to talk about our issues. We're moving into that retirement age, and we've got to learn what does that look like. We're healthier baby than our parents when they were moving into this age. But we're, we probably will live longer than our parents. Um, so that's a whole other group that we're talking through. We're learning about right. through each other. And, you know, and now it's for the members of the LGBT community. It's a, you know, even though we know couples, you know, I've met couples who have been together many, 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 many years. And I even like retired but now to have that where we can not only be married, but a lot of those issues of aging, of retirement, that now we have to talk about those. That maybe before, because marriage equality wasn't there for us, you know, we just made a way out of whatever way. But now it's a different ball game. It's true that we can be legally married. And, and everything that legally married comes on, the good and the bad, we can talk about. We can talk about as we're aging. Um, one partner might lose their job. So maybe that will force you to get married because then you could take that person on that you've been living together with for 25 years and they can legally now be on your insurance as a married spouse. You don't have to navigate through that, that domestic partnership thing. Mm -hmm. They're your spouse. Um, mm -hmm. You have to talk about if you get ill later. Are you going to put where, what will happen when you get ill? What happens if you get dementia? What happens? I mean, all these things now you, you can talk about as a legal couple. You can go to the doctor together as a couple, a same-sex couple, and talk about issues together. Uh, so it's a, it's a wonderful time. We may take a few steps backwards with this administration, but we'll still fight. Um, but oh, we yeah. will still move forward. But uh, you here's know, the good thing. We could fight out loud now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We can fight out loud. You know, throughout all of this, and I think that one of the things that, that another thing that we have in, in common is that we've both been, you know, single, single parents. We've raised our child uh, to adulthood. And, um, my son's a little bit older than, than, than your daughter, you know. Uh -huh. uh, but one of the things he and I, uh, sometimes we sit and talk, and he said, you know, Mom, one of the things that I learned from watching you is, like, there were always challenges, but you found a way to overcome them. Now, Taylor has seen you through professional, uh, being involved in politics, being in all these things. What do you think is the lesson that she has learned watching how you navigate life? And what? Because I always then turn around and tell my son that part of the reason that has motivated me has been him. What has being her mom done for in your journey? You know, it's, 
It's similar to what you just said. Um, hey, I like westerns, and The Rifleman, there's an episode from The Rifleman, and he and his son were in a desert, and and he gave his son the last water so his son could survive and exit the desert. And Taylor and I joke till this day, water in the desert is my job to make this world better for her. And so she knows when I fall down, I'm going to pick myself up. Sometimes it takes a little bit harder to pick myself up. But when we're going through some things, I will protect Taylor first because it's water in the desert. Um, with some of these silly laws that they're trying to pass, I will fight for her. Uh, one of the things on my Facebook page to try to ground people, instead of saying hashtag Black Lives Matter, I put down there, let me make it personal just so we're clear here. So I do hashtag my offspring matters. Mm. So if you don't understand Black Lives Matter, I'm going to make it simple, plain, and clear. My offspring matters. And I'm sure as hell going to fight for her. Um, so she knows that. And, and that makes her stronger, too. Oh, that's beautiful. I like that. I'm, you know, I'm going to hashtag. I, I love that. I, I, I really do. You know, I'm telling you now, I'm, I'm, I'm stealing it. You know, um, uh, yeah, you know, and the thing is, I have had the opportunity to talk to some great moms. Um, I talked to Danielle Atkinson, who, out of just being a mother, she recognized some of the things that you have to deal with and things like about equal pay and time off for your children and and certain she had called it a mama's agenda and she formed an organization called mothering justice and i talked to another another woman whose son was born with with a disability and she became an advocate a fierce advocate to the point now where she has been all over the country and at a time to advocate for his education and, I mean, so you see that it is. Our offsprings matter, and often that is, that's the fuel. You know, like mm-hmm. when people say, well, why do you do it? And this is what, I, what I've heard from so many of these fierce women, that it was the world that they wanted to see for their children, that fueled that fire in their belly to go out there and, and do them, you know, to, to be the best that they can be you know, to accomplish, to do, to educate, and then to go back and share because, you know, what you have shown too is Taylor matters, but you are concerned about all these other kids, and you have been a beacon for them. You know, you you you, you have that one that's yours, but sometimes just by the things that you did. The fact that uh, the Varsity Club named something after you, and a lot of it, as you said, goes back to you had Dr. Jackson who said, you're going to do more than run. You know, this is who, who you're going to be, people who reach back and do that. We're coming into the closing stretch, and I want to ask you what I ask all my guests. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, they all go like, I don't believe you asked me that, but I want you to think about this, and I'd like to ask you, how do you feel that the intersections that have influenced your life have impacted the directions you've taken in the past 
and the directions you're going to take in your life as you move forward into the future with your future work. It, 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 it's all about the foundations that were laid. Um, to me, my high school and college years were my foundation, and that's what I'm still building upon, were, were those learning opportunities that, that I was given in college by Dr. Jackson, by my professors, uh, by my president of my university, and then also in high school. My dad, as I said, was the first African-American assistant principal for Jefferson Junior High School right there off of the freeway um, mm -hmm. back in the 60s. He later became principal at McMichael High School, and they built a new one over there near Northwestern. We used to go to his office. My dad told me in his office when I was young, the principal only knew, knows really two types of kids by name and by faith, the really bad ones and the really good ones. And he looked me in my eye and he said, and which will you be for your principal? Um, and since then, I have known all of my principals. I have known all of my university presidents. And I have known all of the CEOs at the, at the companies that I worked with because I equated that little metaphor to me that CEO is my principal, that president of my university is my principal. Now, there's two types that they will know, and I was never going to be the bad one. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I teach that to my daughter. I said, open your mouth. Don't be afraid to sit up front and ask a question. Challenge. Make your voice heard. Let your principal know that you are here and you have a voice and you're going to affect change for the good. Um, so I've taken that all the way through my life, and I'm still doing it. And my principal has grown. And now my principal, eventually, I know Senator Stabenow. Um, my congressman will soon know me because he may or may not. If he doesn't do what I want, I'm going to work to get him out of there in 2018. Fred um, Upton. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure yet who my principal will be for the governorship here in the state of Michigan. Mm -hmm. I'm working on who I'm going to support there, but I'm going to support somebody very strongly for governor for the state of Michigan coming up. Um, but I have a whole new group of principals. So just take that metaphor and make that work for you is what I would tell your audience. Mm -hmm. Rise up, stand up, have a voice for the good. Uh, well, Cheryl, I want to thank you so much for being our guest tonight. Those are, I mean, that's a great metaphor, and that I think that, you know, really, stand up, people. <laughs> um, I look forward to seeing you sometime in the near future. I'll get over your way. But I want to thank you for all you do in your community, for all you've done. And the lessons that you have shown us, whether people in Portage and where you work, the kids who come to your house, just by how you live your truth. Uh, Cheryl, again, thank you for being my guest tonight, and I'm getting ready to say goodnight to my guests and my collection listeners. 
Um, Cheryl, do you have any last words you want to share with us before we, we turn out the lights? Well, I just thank you very much for having me, and I thank your audience for listening. Well, yeah, and I wish you all well. Well, thank you so much. Um, for our listeners, you can listen to Collections by Michelle Brown every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can reach us on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, and Stitchers. I hope you'll join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual who's living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you. Thank you again, Cheryl, and good night.